Side A, track four. Beautiful. Side A, track five. That's in case I got it wrong. <laughs> you can punch it in. He'll fix it in post. <laughs> oh, no, it's four. No, okay. It's side... side B. Side B, track four. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought it was at the end. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's all right. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, Marketing Director at Panther Pediatrics, where our mission is to keep you satisfied from the nipple to the bottle. (laughs) I am co-host Jeremy, and I've been hired back into the virtual reality world. I know that's stunning. To everyone listening, hired again. Another job? Yeah, I'm creating a new virtual reality experience uh, that is just my life through through the day, and it's called Living My Life, and you just get to live the life of Jeremy Ruggles. It's like being John Malkovich, but being Jeremy Ruggles. Yeah, and it's probably more boring somehow. You know, up until this point, I've never really fully understood what it is I wanted out of life until now. That's that's all I want. You want to live live Jeremy's life. Yeah, but virtually. Yeah, you don't want to live it for real. No. God, no. <laughs> all right. Well, I look forward to experiencing that. I am co-host Peter Cook, and I have an unlimited capacity for Quaker Oats. Like that callback to like two seasons ago. Wow. Bringing the Quakers back. Yeah. Quaker Oats are back, baby. (laughs) By popular demand. By popular demand. Something tells me they never really left either. Exactly. Yeah, you can stop sending emails about it now. He's covered the Quaker Oats again. All right. I brought a record this week. As you already know, because you clicked on it, it's Grace Jones living my life. 1982, and let's uh, jump into a track. What are we going to start with? Unlimited Capacity for Love, Side B, Track 4.
kind of a gateway into this album one of the less out there kind of numbers a little bit more accessible perhaps but what I really like about Grace Jones work broadly is that there's more lyrical depth than a lot of dance type musics and also that the it's not like that obnoxious energetic thing that I can't stomach very much of yeah it's upbeat and laid back yeah the laid backness makes it doable for me for long periods i can only do like high tempo energetic stuff like very briefly before i'm just burnt on it Mm -hmm. yeah and then a, a lot of the songs have engaging and compelling lyrics yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> this makes a lot of sense, knowing you. This would be like the the early 80s post-disco album for Jeremy Ruggles. True. That's why I had to bring it here for everyone else. I'm glad you did. And I don't know if I'm speaking for some of our listeners when I say this, but I, I think largely my relationship with Grace Jones is her iconic image not so much her music it's just i think it was before my time and i've never really you know i was kind of vaguely aware of what she did but i think even in pop culture she may be better known for her look yeah <laughs> like i remember going and seeing black panther the marvel movie in theaters a few years ago and if you haven't noticed by my lack of when i've mentioned i mentioned a lot of movies on the podcast and I don't bring up Marvel movies often, but that was like you know, an event, you know, Black Panther, whether you're into that stuff or not. And, you know, nothing against anyone who's into Marvel. It's just not really my bag anymore. I, I grew up on comics and stuff, but the movies just don't interest me that much. But, you know, I rem- remember within the first few minutes of that film, there's a reference to like, oh, there's these two Grace Jones looking chicks outside. <laughs> and yeah. it's, yeah. Her aesthetic is definitely a big part of it, and I think she plays it out into her music very well. If you're unfamiliar with Grace Jones, I think the kind of image she's known for is sort of androgynous Mm -hmm. and lots of like sharp angular lines is a big part of it. Very geometric. Yeah, very geometric. She's very tall. Yeah, like 5'11". Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she has like a very distinct look. And it uh, inspired a a lot of people in the 80s and beyond. I think like Lady Gaga lists her as one of her biggest influences. Mm -hmm. I (laughs) I found a quote from Grace Jones. Apparently Lady Gaga had asked her about collaborating and Grace Jones said she liked working with original artists, not people who are copycats. 
Wow. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Grace Jones is like that, though. She's got that hard edge and doesn't take shit from anybody and is, like, not afraid to piss people off sometimes. Yeah. Her image, like, is pretty authentic. It's not, like, a put-on or something. Yeah. And... And it comes from somewhere, which we'll get into momentarily. Interesting. Sean, what's your knowledge of Grace Jones? Grace is one of those artists that I've just become familiar with from record collecting, as I've said many times, but not someone who I'd done a ton of deep dive research on. Uh, I've got a few of her records, some singles, play her music when I can. Definitely found that it has to be the right audience at dj gigs to appreciate grace jones's music because it's like if it's people that are heads and are gonna know about grace jones they're gonna go wild but if it's like a normie crowd the music is too slow for people to get into is what i've found interestingly enough Mm -hmm. that tracks but yeah i've always i've always loved the aesthetic i love the music i love how like you said it's it's up tempo but kind of laid back at the same time but also kind of menacing at times yeah also, I grew up a huge James Bond fan, which I'm definitely not anymore, and feel like I can't even like rewatch any of those movies because they're uh, so problematic. But Grace Jones had a great role in a James Bond movie, and I do remember her from that. Maybe that was maybe the first time I ever experienced Grace Jones actually. So, going back to the, you know, being remembered primarily as a visual artist and an actor at times, than for the music. Yeah, I'm sure my first exposure would have been uh, Conan the Barbarian when mm-hmm. I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because she's someone who I've I've known of her for a long, long time. I could, couldn't tell you what my first encounter was with her, but yeah, I just I've somehow feel like I've musically missed her, and until Jeremy Ruggles came along and with this album, and I love it. Uh, I, let me just state that I, I've listened to it a couple times now and. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't bring you a dud, Peter. <laughs> JK, I've probably brought you duds because everybody has their own view or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Okay. D- don't worry. I-, I have such a bad memory. I don't remember if you did, as I've clearly indicated with, with having a bad memory. <laughs> well, let's get into some Grace Jones bio. Do it. Grace Jones. Supposedly born May 19th, 1948, though some sources say 1952. I could not find consensus other than it seems like people believe 1948 now. She was born in Spanish Town, Jamaica, and her parents moved to America when she was a child and left her in the care of her grandparents. And this is where Grace got kind of her militant, disciplined edge because her grandfather was very strict and militant, but also was physically abusive with the children and would hit them anytime they, you know, carried out the slightest infraction of the rules. So at age 13, Grace moved to America and joined her family, her parents there, and left that situation. But it, she said it left a mark on her. And though she was rebellious, she just 
she said she was militant in her rebelliousness and she was disciplined in her like not following the rules or like being wild so she like carried this like overarching ethos into her kind of countercultural nature yeah i get a very intentional and disciplined vibe from her yeah that's and that matches with the image she would later develop but we're going you know chronologically here so she moves to america back with her parents out from under the iron fist of her grandfather and just starts going wild she's drinking she's going to gay clubs with her brother she's just going out and doing it all she it's probably like a renaissance yeah (laughs) after that upbringing yeah and she takes a theater class and ends up going to philadelphia for performance and ends up staying there and hanging out with hippies and she starts doing drugs she says lsd was a very important moment in her life like it uh, helped her emotionally develop she said i see that's what's that's what's different about her dance music I think most dance music was Coke-inspired. Hers is LSD-inspired. Yeah, yeah, and I think you can... To me, one of the big things I like about Grace Jones is all the like textural elements going on in the music. Mm-hmm. It reminds me in that sense of sort of like Talking Heads, where there's like a lot of textural elements combined with the dance music that gives it... I don't know. It's more interesting to me. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Thank you. And both uh, visual artists, you know, David Byrne and Grace Jones, continue to put almost equal importance on the visual element of the live show as well as the music. Mm-hmm. Oh, such good points. Yeah, and they're both <laughs> tall and slender. <laughs> <laughs> Loved wearing goofy clothes sometimes. It all comes Lots together. Wearing... Yeah. <laughs> So let's leave it there before we go into the next stage. Let's tap into a little inspiration. This is the next track I'd like to play for you. It is Side B, Track 3. We're going to get even slower. Inspiration. Searching 
that's a good example of how long Grace Jones is willing to take into a track to really pick up the pace. <laughs> that there was that part where the claps came in and it kind of picked up a little bit and then just as quickly was it's gone again, subdued again. Yeah, back to a just a heady, more just lyrically bass song. This one barely even qualifies as a dance song in my mind. Yeah, yeah, which I, I can see what Sean was saying about if it's a crowd of Grace Jones heads, they'll be into the fact that you're playing it, but other people might that are planning to dance might not know what to do with that. Yeah, you know, while we were listening to that track, I was reminded of a time I was DJing a wedding with former guest of the show, Trevor Coleman, and he was looking through my record box and found, I think, Pull Up to the Bumper by Grace Jones. He's like, oh, we got to put this on. I was like, dude, look around you. We're DJing a Kentucky Derby-themed wedding. There's not a single person here aside from the two of us that's going <laughs> to enjoy this. <laughs> oh, true. There might be a... Would, would someone not uh, name their horse Grace Jones <laughs> in the Kentucky Derby? It's possible. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a Kentucky Derby yeah. head. <laughs> yeah, that's all you, Peter. I'm here to talk about Grace Jones, not the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> Oh, I'm on the wrong podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's always Weezer and the Kentucky Derby with this guy. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think that if you were going to name a horse something, it'd have to be like unconditional capacity for love. Aw. <laughs> That's a great name. But also that track, I think, is a perfect example of what we were just talking about with the love of texture and the LSD influence because it's very textural and there's a lot of kind of weird synthesizer sounds drifting around the still very groovy beat. But yeah, I love it. I was saying to Jeremy while we were listening to that, I don't know if you were able to hear me, Sean, but because for you listeners, Jeremy and I are in the same room and Sean is in Philadelphia. But <laughs> I, I was saying that there's actually some moments on this where the production and the guitar tones kind of remind me of uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I, it further then occurred to me that another Brick in the Wall Part 2 is basically a disco song <laughs> <laughs> that gets played on classic rock radio. Controversial. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to Grace Jones. Back to Grace Jones. So she's uh, doing pot with the hippies in Philly. and Doing pot. Doing pot. <laughs> And she goes back to New York very briefly and gets signed to a modeling contract and heads out to Paris to be a world-famous model in, like, no time flat. (laughs) She was modeling on, like, the biggest runways in the world. She was appearing on the covers of all the big fashion magazines. Her look just suddenly became extremely in style yeah and was it a pretty original look was she inspired by anyone visually that you came across in researching for this i mean i know that a look is to an extent natural but there seem to be things she's done that are very deliberate to emphasize certain unique features and characteristics of herself yeah as far as i could tell i didn't he i mean she was not didn't personally name any inspirations. Mm-hmm. Her uh, her lover, whom we will get to, definitely molded her image, though, that 
that came to be, but we're not there yet. Okay, I'm getting ahead with that question. Getting a little ahead of yourself. So she's off in Paris doing all this fashion stuff. At one point she goes to a, a party of like French politicians and she shows up just bare naked except for a necklace of bones and is just walking around like that. So she didn't lose her edge or rebelliousness during this. She's still wild. Yeah. And she's also at this time frequenting Studio 54, known for wildness and drugs and just doing whatever you want. Yeah, I think that's about the three things that Studio 54 is known for. Wildness and drugs and doing anything you want. Yeah. At least how it's been portrayed in media. True. I was never there. Prove it. (laughs) So Grace is also in this time while she's modeling and she's living with a few fellow models. Her roommate, Jerry Hall, she would put on cabaret shows with her for their friends and... Uh, Another one of Grace's friends, Pat Cleveland, encouraged her to pursue singing. She was like, you're really good at this, not just like for fun, like you could really do this. So Grace decides to pursue that and gets signed to Island Records in 1977 to jump from international supermodel to music. Just like that. Yeah, which is not usually not usually a jump that works out on the music end. There there have been other models that tried to break into the music industry and I would say pretty much never with as much success as Grace Jones had. Yeah. Or probably with with as much talent as Grace Jones had for that matter. Mm-hmm. Her first album, Portfolio, was recorded at Sigma Sound Studios in Philly. Oh yeah. We talked about that a few times at the beginning of the season. Yeah, when we were doing our our Philly run, Philly International run we did. Yeah. And she worked with disco producer Tom Moulton, and she went on to record three albums in total from like 77 to 80 that were all very disco-y. At this time, she was also dubbed the queen of the gay discos because of her kind of androgynous look she was leaning into and also apparently in that era wore a lot of like S&M type outfits. So that was her sort of disco phase and she's still partying at Studio 54. She becomes buddies with Andy Warhol and they're both partying at Studio 54. Mm -hmm. She's kind of like a muse for him and he ends up doing a bunch of portraits with her Then disco came crashing down, as we all know, come about 1980, and she somehow avoids just getting washed out with a lot of disco artists. Kind of, I would say, similarly to how we talked about in the Diana Ross episode with her album Diana, she reinvents herself and does it believably. It doesn't feel like a put-on as I think it did with many of the disco people who tried to shift gears. Yeah. And I think if you actually listen to those disco albums too, there's these 
seeds of this sort of artsier, experimental kind of music within them. So I think she already had the seeds of what she was becoming planted before it kind of came to fruition. Yeah, it definitely seemed like the 1980 and on records, she had a lot more creative control. And instead of making the music that the label wanted to hear and that they thought was going to be popular, she was trying something new, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But in her case, was an even more successful period of her career after switching out of disco. Yeah, this became known as the, the Compass Point Trilogy part of her career, where she recorded three albums with the Compass Point All-Stars in the Bahamas. And the first album of that trilogy was Warm Leatherette, followed by Nightclubbing. And both of these albums are, you know, critically acclaimed. They sold really well, especially Nightclubbing kind of took her to a whole nother level. And as you listen to those albums and this album, you'll hear the shift. I don't think anyone listening to this album would think disco. I don't, and that's like gone by the time she releases Warm Leatherette and she's shifted into a more reggae influenced and kind of mixed with new wave sound. Yeah, that was something I noted was the strong reggae influence on a lot of the tracks on here. And yeah, like now that you say it, I can hear new wave too, but I, the little bit that I was aware of Grace Jones prior to doing a little research for this episode, I hadn't really, I was unaware of the fact that she was Jamaican for one thing, but that she really carried like reggae influences into her music and they're strong on this record. Yeah. And that's big thanks to the compass point all-stars who were a bunch of reggae heads. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, One of the biggest influences on the musical direction of this album were Sly and Robbie who worked with kind of everybody. That's uh, Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare. Sly Dunbar plays drums and Robbie Shakespeare on bass. Mm-hmm. And recently, He recently passed away. And he recently passed away. Yeah, you could say that those two are probably the most important session players in the history of reggae music. Yeah, they worked with all the big people in that scene. Peter Tosh, Black Uhuru... Bunny Whaler. Weren't they even on some Bob Dylan records? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah, they went on to be on like Bob Dylan, Cindy Lauper, Yoko Ono. Yeah. A bunch of huge names went to them kind of after they became known as like these are who you go to if you want a real reggae vibe going on. Yeah. The rhythm section. I guess we'll get into the other players since we already started down this path. Uh, Wally Bataru plays keyboards. He went on to work with Talking Heads, Jimmy Cliff, Mick Jagger, and he was a Compass Point. All these players were considered part of the Compass Point All-Stars session team. They were, you know, the Nashville A-team or the wrecking crew of Compass Point Studios. Uh-huh. Uh, Mikey Chung on the guitar. He worked with Peter Tosh, Joe Cocker, Sinead O'Connor, one of my all-time favorites. Barry Reynolds 
a British guitarist, played as well on this album. He played on, you know, all those records that all the other dudes played on, but was also a regular player with Marianne Faithful mm-hmm. for years before joining the Compass Point crew. Yeah, Uzziah Thompson playing percussion, worked with, you know, all the same people, Peter Tosh and Aid O'Connor, and later also worked with Stephen Marley. And the final instrumentalist on this thing, who was also a producer, Alex Sagkin on organs, and he was a big-time producer who went on to work with, like, Duran Duran, the Thompson Twins, The Cure... James Brown, I'm sure he was a big part of any like new wave influence going on mm. in this album. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like he shaped the sound of the 80s to an extent. <laughs> so let's cut to another track. Uh, I want to get into some of the weirderness of this album, and we're going to play the Apple Stretching next. Oh, yes. One of the few... Or the only cover on this album? Yeah, it is the only cover, which I should have mentioned this earlier. Pretty much all of her albums before this were majority covers of other people's songs. Mm. Often, like, really well-known songs. Like, she did Breakdown by Tom Petty and, yeah, just a lot of, like, famous songs. And this album was it huge step away from that in that it was all originals except for this one that is a cover but it's like an unknown song from a play yeah by melvin van peebles yeah by melvin van peebles Kisses the lady waiting in the narrows And she already plenty shaky stands there Blushing Clutching the torch of liberty Uptown Luigi who don't speak English so good Is having an accident Backing his dump truck into the fence The tin cans go clattering down the lane Rain. No, it ain't judgment day. 
To me, that makes a lot of sense, picking a song written by Melvin Van Peebles, because that was another guy who wasn't afraid to get weird with the music that he was doing and had a lot of interesting atmospheric stuff and, you know, was another person that was very, very influential in black culture. I mean, he's considered the godfather of modern black cinema by some people and is also just as important for his music. But yeah, that, that translates really well on this Grace Jones album. It's got that laid back vibe. It's a little weird, but it's still a little groovy and lyrically very interesting. Yeah, and I love when she starts singing after like the talking mm-hmm. section. When it goes into that, my head always just starts bobbing. <laughs> like, yeah. So I did want to touch on the aesthetic and in particular the influence of it that came from her lover through this period, Jean-Paul Gauda. He uh, created the images on her album covers during this period, which are pretty iconic, I would say. Uh, If you know who Grace Jones is, I feel like you've seen these images, perhaps. Am I mistaken in that? Probably not mistaken. (laughs) Yeah. It's all the more weirder, I noticed, in preparation for this, that on when I went to Spotify to check out the album, they don't have the proper album covers. <laughs> yeah. Like- I Reading about uh, John Paul's work, I started to wonder if that was intentional, perhaps. A big thing he was doing was, like, overemphasizing the the starkness of her image the actual album cover is you know grace jones with her flat top that she had during this period but jean paul like cut out the images the image with extremely straight lines and just like further emphasized the like straight angular look she has to a ridiculous, exaggerated style. It makes her look animated. Um, yeah. The covers, yeah. Yeah, okay, so that's, I was like, how could anyone get lines that straight on a human being? <laughs> yeah, and he would, I think on the album Island Life, he had her, like, contorted in a way that was, you know, not physically possible by, like, rendering a couple different images together, and mm-hmm. he just, like, painted to fill in some gaps and so they're highly manipulated yeah they're manipulated images and uh, people have perceived it as like very racialized Mm -hmm. like the way he would manipulate them and you know his choice of subject which was often black females in his art side of things but he was also a like marketer type person and in his marketing materials there were no black people (laughs) so people look back now and say "Uh, i don't uh, yeah Yeah. seems maybe kind of not cool but maybe that was his point as well it was unclear to me um there's definitely been some pushback and critique of his work in more recent years so You know, people can uh, form their own opinions on that, I suppose. Yeah. 
but he was absolutely instrumental in crafting her image. Aside from doing these album covers, he also directed her music videos and choreographed her live performances. So his fingerprints are all over this image that she portrayed that, as you mentioned earlier, is she's kind of more known for almost than the actual music she created. Yeah, yeah, she's definitely an icon. Well, I'd say challenging imagery has always been easier to sell than challenging music. I mean, there's always the example of Captain Beefheart never being able to really hit success making weird music and then he made weird visual art and suddenly got all the appreciation he never received before. That's true. Yeah, he was more successful as a visual artist than a musician. Yeah. You only have to look at a challenging image for a second. A song just keeps going. That's true. (laughs) It's inescapable. (laughs) Yeah. So this was, as I mentioned, the last of the Compass Point trilogy and also the last album she would put out for a few years. This album was fairly commercially successful but was not nearly as critically celebrated as her previous efforts. And she shifted into actress and was in a bunch of films, as we had mentioned. She shifts back into music in 1985 through 1989, puts out a few more records, then shifts back out of music again for a while. I'm doing broad outlines because we're out of time and there's a ton of info out on her. If if you're interested, look into these periods because there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens. But she puts out an album in 1989, Bulletproof Heart, and then there's a long stretch where there's nothing musically until 2008's Hurricane, which I actually listened to before this for the first time, and it's really good. Yeah, and that was like a return to the Jamaican influence. Sly and Robbie are back on it, and it's got the reggae happening again. Yeah, so that would make sense why I I thought that one was really good. (laughs) It is very good. Uh, In preparation for this episode, I watched almost all of, minus the last eight minutes or so, which I'll be finishing after we record, but the 2017 Grace Jones documentary, Bloodlight and Bammy, which most of it was actually filmed around 2008 while she was recording the album Hurricane. So it's like a really interesting portrait of her life at that time and also has a lot of insight into her early life in Jamaica and how that helped inform her as an adult. Yeah, she puts out that album. She writes a memoir about her life. She worked with gorillas. Like the band or? Gor- the, yeah, the band. Okay. Not like a bunch of literal animals. I mean, I would put nothing past Grace Jones. She can do whatever she wants. <laughs> a true modern renaissance artist. Could have been the Gorilla Girls. Yeah, I mean, if you told me she took 10 years off to, like, teach gorillas how to speak, I would believe you. Yeah, that, yeah, I should have been more clear. You're right. (laughs) Uh, She was given the Order of Jamaica, which is kind of the Jamaican equivalent to being knighted. And she is currently, this year, curating the Meltdown Festival in the U.K., and also performing at it, it looked like. I was looking at the lineup. So she is still very much active. She's out there 
Go see her perform. Yeah, if you're in the UK, go catch her uh, set. She's doing, it looked like she was doing an orchestral set and a non-orchestral set. So that's uh, that's some real gloss over finish there to Grace Jones. But there's good stuff in there if you're interested. There but for the Grace of Jones. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> well, on that note, I think it's time to turn to Sean here and ask what you found for recommended similar albums. Yeah, I got a few good ones. So on the Nona Hendrix episode that we recently did, I mentioned that Grace Jones was probably the most accurate comparison. And I think that still works. I recommended a different Grace Jones album for the Nona record that we did. And for this one, I will recommend a different Nona album. Her self-titled from 1983 is a really good comparison to this. It has the kind of dance vibe, but there's some other experimentation happening on there. And that's one of the material produced albums, as mentioned. That would have been her first one when she came back after an extended gap. Yeah, that that was her comeback record after six years of playing on other people's records. Mm -hmm. My second recommended album is the solo album that Sly Dunbar did in the same year, 1982. The album is called Sligoville and is an excellent early 80s reggae album if you're into that aspect of this music. And then finally, an album that we covered before that I think is a little bit lighter in tone, but still has a lot of comparisons, especially with kind of mixing funk and new wave. And that is Kid Creole and the Coconuts, Tropical Gangsters, also from 1982. Yeah, I included a track from that, No Fish Today, on the April Patreon-exclusive playlist that I made. Uh, and so. Yeah, Don't tell a- yourself sure. That's a mix. That's not a playlist. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I also included a couple other tracks in a similar spirit from albums we've previously covered. Uh, Donna Summer's Bad Girls. I did hot stuff from that. And uh, Diana Ross, the Diana album, I uh, featured I'm Coming Out from that. Yeah, that seems like a good parallel to check out if if you dig this. Someone who escaped being crushed by the the pullback on disco and reinvented themselves as i mentioned earlier so check out that album and that episode if uh if you dug this if you feel so inclined we have 129 <laughs> previous episodes <laughs> plus bonus ones for you to to check out and if you want to check out our our bonus content you can always go over to patreon.com/i'dbythatpodcast and sign up to support us today. And you can hear that mix I was talking about. A mix, damn it, a mix. Thank you, Jeremy. You're welcome, <laughs> Peter. Thank you. Well, uh, have we? do we have any last thoughts on Grace Jones before we sign off? Uh, I think it's, I would just say that it's very much lost on people nowadays how influential her look was to the 80s alone so if nothing else you know check out some of her visual stuff because it defined the 80s yeah yeah as far as artists who achieve 
mainstream recognition, but do it in a very avant-garde and unique way. She is right at the top there. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Certainly an icon by any metric, but also the music speaks for itself as well. So once you're done checking out the visuals, just do a good old deep dive into the music because there's a ton of amazing material to be rediscovered. For yeah. sure. For sure. That's probably the most amazing thing about her is just being such a visual influence, but actually making really incredible music too. So, <laughs> Yeah. If Grace Jones had been like a hermit that never released an image of herself ever and like played behind a brick wall on stage, these records would still be legendary. Yeah. 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 If she'd gone like Jandek, the Jandek route. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a collaboration I want to see. Jandek. Oh, man. That would be far <laughs> out. Grace Jones. You know, if Nona Hendrix she can do she a... likes originals. <laughs> exactly. If Nona Hendrix yeah. can do a Captain Beefheart tribute, then Grace Jones can definitely do a Jandek collab. Let's make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. We've, we found our mission on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well. 130 episodes in. <laughs> we're going to make the world a better place. <laughs> Well, we've looped around a gin deck, so probably about time to <laughs> close down shop. Yeah, what uh, what song are we uh, going to feature last here? We're going to go with probably the most popular song from this album and kind of the only one she would go on to play in her live shows after this album, My Jamaican Guy. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Or if this is your first time, like we said, you got a lot of episodes you can check out. So you can always go over to I'dBuyThatPodcast.com, our website. When was the last time we plugged our website on the podcast? Uh, exactly 87 episodes ago. <laughs> Keeping track. I don't know. I am your co-host, Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. I am your co-host, Jeremy Ruggles.